Hi, everyone. I'm Anita Lustria, and for many years I did live radio. Then I transitioned to the podcast world where I feel I found my home. I love talking about spiritual formation, justice issues, and spiritual practices. Throw in the Enneagram, movies, and current events from time to time, and that's what you get on the podcast. I'm glad you've come along for the ride. Welcome to Faith Conversations. Welcome to Faith Conversations, everyone. I'm delighted to have with me on the podcast today, Mary McCampbell. She is Associate Professor of Humanities at Lee University, and she regularly teaches courses on contemporary fiction, film, popular culture, and modernism. And right now, I want to go back to school. I don't know about you, but just hearing that sounds so marvelous. Um, well, you don't have to worry about um, trying to take her class because you've got her book, which is marvelous. It's titled Imagining Our Neighbors as Ourselves, subtitled How Art Shapes Empathy. And don't we need empathy in today's world? Yes, capital Y, capital E, capital S with a million exclamation points. So I'm going to dispense with reading the rest of the bio. Um, suffice it to say that Mary McCampbell is um, a talented professor and writer, and I'm delighted to have her on Faith Conversations. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's an, it's an honor and a delight to be here. Well, I, I, I confess, um, I... I'm in the communications field and uh, I love good literature, good writing. Um, I had a literature professor uh, from my alma mater who was very instrumental in my life. And I, I learned the value of good literature. When my husband and I started going to our current church, we moved about five and a half years ago from Chicago to Sarasota, Florida. And the first Sunday when I was there and the pastor, of course, used preached from a scripture passage, but used literary references mm -hmm. and um, talked about justice. And it's like he hit all of my hot buttons. <laughs> and uh, I thought, yep, we're coming back. Um, so you come by this honestly in your writing because you you are um, a professor and are you are you specifically well you're a professor of humanities but um what all do you teach yeah um well my uh my doctorate is in contemporary literature ah. uh, but i'm very i've always been very interested in um very uh, um seeing the connections between different disciplines yes. so i'm very interdisciplinary uh, and even in my in the in the dissertation you know it, it was relationship between theology and literature and so now i teach i teach courses that are uh, mostly literature based although i do have a film and philosophy class and i have a popular culture but i mean i see every every you know everything is a as a text yeah and so whether it's film whether we're talking about you know music videos i i use a lot of um popular music in classes. So I tend to, in all my classes, be interdisciplinary, but at the core, uh, you know, the, they're, they're very literary, yes. but, but I kind of extend that definition. And I, and I love putting every, I love the, 
you know, you have to have the historical context to help you understand literature. You want to talk about the philosophical underpinning to understand literature. And the, the every every good piece of literature has, you know, has philosophy and theology couched within it. So yes I'm, I'm interdisciplinary all the way <laughs> love it i love it my my liter literature professor would always say all truth is god's truth no matter where yes. you find it yes common yeah. grace yes common exactly. grace insights yeah yeah so that's good big thing. <laughs> well i have to ask you this is your first book and and i think I, sometimes i have to be careful saying this i guess sometimes those first books are the best because they're really a heart book of whoever's writing it or a book that's been forming for years uh, inside uh, an author. T tell about the inception of this book or, or if you've been thinking about this for a long time, why this topic? Yes. Uh, well, a couple of reasons. I, I think, well, most of it comes from my experience as a teacher, as a professor, I mean, it's in, when you said, you know, we can go to we'll go to school in the book. I mean, that's kind of my vision of the book. But uh, I really, I mean, I think I've been aware myself of how much, how spiritually formative my love of the arts has been, and how much I've learned um, in a in a, in a way that goes beyond just enjoyment and critical thinking, you know, it, it's, it's, those are all connected, of course, but in my classroom, uh, especially in the past few years, there, especially there's certain texts that we will read. And I have seen students really, I'm, I'm just shocked by the transformation, uh, especially in books to do with race. Uh, I've had, I've had countless notes from students recognizing their own racism and wanting to change and it's because they read the frederick Douglass's narrative or they read um these are things i teach in the uh, my big kind of what we call core classes yes. that everyone has to take mm -hmm. um and interestingly Douglas, and then another course i teach I, I teach a shakespeare text and i always choose othello because i can talk about um it, it it i can i mean all shakespeare's uh plays are relevant to today because they have the enduring human questions and experiences but um i i talk about racial profiling and and the the different kind of biases that we see in the play and how it and also the internalization of white supremacy that we see even in the main character but when he starts to doubt himself and they just you know at first they're terrified of shakespeare but then they get into it and they can't believe how much it relates and i have students write me say you know in my class in my home we said we we always said the n-word and our mm -hmm. i was taught to be scared of black people i've never realized that that was wrong and, and i mean it's amazing because it it's it's that idea that you know a good story it also reads you <laughs> Yes. Um, so there's a part of seeing they see themselves and it's a it's a you know, I talk a lot, too, about prophetic critique. But with that, that's all a part of the empathy making process.
process, I think, yes. is you also have to be honest about yourself. You see the other person as human in God's image. And just the way, I mean, I've seen it with film and literature and, and music. I've studied albums, you know, in mm. classes. And yeah, it's it's powerful to watch. So that is what went into this. I'm so excited about it. And I wanted just to share it with a, a bigger group of people. Love that. Well, I have to ask you um, about your own background. You know, you don't just wake up one day and and uh, decide to um, deal with neighbor issues and race issues, justice issues. You where where was that born in you? Was that from your family, or did you come by that later in life? I mean, I think you know, I think. Uh, so I grew up in Memphis and just interestingly, Memphis is like 60, 70% black. Uh, so it is different than a lot of other places I've lived. And, um, so I'm sure that's a part of that, even though when I was growing up, I didn't necessarily even think about that. Um, but I mean, I, I think my whole life, my mother is a very compassionate, empathetic person. And I think she really taught me to see someone you know, through their story and and uh help me with that uh but i think as far as some of the issues that now i feel really compassionate really passionate about especially dealing with like race you know kind of working against race and misogyny and abuse and dehumanization I took a graduate course and called that was cultural representations of slavery and genocide. Wow. Not very, not very upbeat, huh? Yeah. Uh, but it was one of the best classes I've ever taken. It, and it also made me realize, uh, well, I took it in the UK because I went to graduate school at the university of Newcastle, which is in the Northeast of, of England. I did a master's and PhD there. And so it was interesting because I was looking at America through a different set of eyes by being in that classroom and asking questions. Why does the United States have a uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum and not a memorial for you know, the genocide of uh, Native Americans mm -hmm. or for you know, all the, the 6 million or more as Toni Morrison writes, getting a yeah. beloved we've lost through the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so it just made me start beginning and critiquing my own culture and my own experience. Mm. And just the experience of living overseas for, um, I was there five and a half years and I've oh, spent a wow. lot of other, yeah, it was long. I spent a lot of other time in the UK altogether. I've been there probably about seven years. Um, and so just living outside of your culture and it, it, it makes you kind of both love it more and but also critique it more and uh we had a i was very involved in a church and a a, a nonprofit organization that was to help and be neighbors to international students even though i was an international student but uh and so for years i was some i mean here i am doing a phd and sometimes volunteering 40 hours a week it was crazy <laughs> we had these monthly cultural cafes and people from all these different countries, you know, sometimes sometimes we'd have 200 people and I've got to know them well from many Muslim, many, many from Europeans who were very resistant to anything to do with Christianity. 
so I think that also shaped and taught me a lot. Um, but I, I, I uh, think that really as far as race issues are concerned, although that's al always been something that I cared about, I don't think I realized how much I did not know and did not understand until Ferguson happened. And I began, I met some people uh, basically online. This is why I, I don't like when people are so, I, I'm tired of all the, you know, negative, all the criticism of, social media. I mean, it's a tool and it can be used poorly, but I have learned so much. I think social media has actually helped me become more empathetic. Oh, I, I'm totally <laughs> with you. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've met some uh, uh, friends online, such as uh, Tyler Burns, who's the president of the Witness of Christ Black Christian Collective, Jamar Tisby, uh, Ekemeni Uwan with Truth Table. And I met a few of them through a online group with Christ and Pop Culture. And sure. I don't know, it just kind of grew my world. And I started to go to conferences that related to these things. And um, so anyway, that's a very long answer, but it's the kind of thing I'm thinking back now, how did I? <laughs> well, I, I love the answer because and, and the phrase you used right at the end, I grew my world we mm. can grow our world if we yes. choose yes right it's it's a choice you didn't have to grow your world and you could have chosen to just kind of stay rather insular and you know but you i love that i grew my world yes <laughs> uh, well <laughs> well I, I just yeah yeah well and you're you're helping us you are helping us to grow our world through your book because i think and some of that obviously is is purposeful um, you, I, I, um, highlighted some quotes early on in your book. I love you started right out with Graham green. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I think this is probably in the, in the introduction, but, um, oh, where I've got it now. I want to see if I can find it, uh, talking about, you know, when you, when you visualized a man or a woman carefully, you could always begin to, to feel pity. That was a quality God's image carried with it. When you saw the lines at the corners of the eyes, the shape of the mouth, how the hair grew, it was impossible to hate. Hate, here it is, was just a failure of imagination. What a quote. Yes. <laughs> what that's, a line, right? That was also a big inspiration for this book is that line. Uh, that's an amazing line. Uh, yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, you go on to talk, um, I think I wrote another amazing quote down too from, um, novelist Michael and I can't, what's his last name? Shaban. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, talks about imagination also being necessary if you want to empathize and treat others with compassion. To me, imagination is key to morality. If you can't imagine what it is to live in someone else's head, then you're more likely to hurt them. Mm. I thought that was pretty powerful. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, just, just take that one in for a while and see if it doesn't change the way that, mm -hmm. that a person lives. Um, how did you decide what, you know, what pieces of literature, what movies or, or visual arts to, to include in the book, um, things that had just impacted you or things that, that helped move your uh, thought, thought line forward? How, how did you decide that? 
Yeah, uh, I mean, some of them I just knew. The uh, in the first chapter, I well, some of them are things I use frequently in class. Like I wondered, yes, yeah, I'd use an Alice Walker story that I've read. So it's a very short story, but it's about a black woman attending a white church, an elderly black woman, and the way they mistreated her. Um, and you know some of these i've used and it's been they've been very powerful in class of course o'connor uh but and also um I, I would say one that i think the first time i really started talking about overt more overtly about empathy i would the first piece i would use even though i was always talking about empathy and maybe not labeling it as that right but the first piece i really used was the uh coleridge poem this lime tree bower my prison which is about samuel taylor coleridge um who is such a drama queen i mean he's hilarious uh the the romantic poet so he has friends coming to visit him um in the lake district in england and uh, you know this is mid nineteenth century, and so they they live in London, which feels very far away. Uh, and he's planned their trip, and then he breaks his leg before they come, and so he can't go hiking and do everything. But they go off and do these things without him, and he's sitting in his what is probably incredibly beautiful lime tree bower but moaning about how horrible, how he's probably going to die and they'll never see him again. And they've gone and they've gone walking without him. And he's just so angry and bitter and dramatic, but then something happens in the poem and he begins to remember that his friend has been cooped up in the city and nature is what nurtures him and he has such a deep love of nature and he then he says that this wonderful feeling comes upon his heart as if he was there he starts to imagine what it feels like so at the beginning he's using his imagination in a very negative way which is very easy when someone has done something that hurts us we we are especially if they're doing something without us we tend to imagine, oh, what they're doing and, you know, all this. And students really relate to this, this, <laughs> when I talk yeah, about it. I'm sure they do. But, <laughs> yes. But then, um, then all of a sudden he, he, he stops and he starts thinking about the love of his friend's heart, which is nature. And he starts, he starts imagining the joy. And then all of a sudden his own surroundings, he begins to see how beautiful the lime tree bower he's sitting in, whereas before he thought it was a prison. Now he's thinking, wow, <laughs> look at how beautiful nature is. So I use this poem, and to me, it's a deeply Christian poem. Now, I don't even know if he was a Christian at that point. He converted later in his life and huh. wrote theology. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's a poem that teaches us, because I have a chapter about works of art. So, so some chapters are giving us a, a picture of um, works of art that really give us an up close uh, um, experience of someone that we might think is very different than us. But this chapter is, uh, is full of works of art. I think it's the first chapter that model empathy. What does empathy look like? And it's modeled within the text. And so this is the first one I talk about. Um, and then I connect it with other um, works 
but sorry, you were asking me how I chose, and then I went off into COVID. <laughs> I love but it. I, I, I really love that point. But the point is that was kind of the first. That was that was one of the main ones that really inspired me. I've taught O'Connor for years, but I don't know it if I'd ever thought about how a good man of the heart is hard to find is really about empathy. I'd never thought of it through that lens, even though I understood the theology of it. So I think it, it's just it's kind of like when I had the eyes to see that yes. I started noticing how this was the, the different texts. And honestly, some of them were just things that I just watched or listened to. I mean, honestly, any good work of art, not any, but most good works of art are going to a present you with a very complex picture of the human experience. They're not going to be formulaic or oversimplify. Yes. Um, and in that you can see yourself, you can connect and relate. Um, and also they are going to kind of give you a window into someone else's life. Um, and, and if it's good art, it's, it will be in a way that's not voyeuristic. It's, it's, it's more relational. Yes. And so there's so much wonderful art like that. And, and so there were certain things that I just watched, like The Chosen, I just watched the series. Well, so I I was very resistant to watching it. I really oh. thought, really, is this going to be a piece of evangelical crappy art? Like <laughs> yeah. so much, you know, I, I'm sorry for whoever's put out good art. I know that exists. And also <laughs> my husband and I could not get into uh, just, we tried episode one, tried and tried. And he had a spiritual direction client that said, start with episode three with Jesus and the children. Mm. When you ever go back to one and two, we started with three and we were off and running. Yeah. 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 So now let me let you finish telling the story about watching the chosen. Oh no, but I understand. I was resistant for so long because yeah, it's hard not to be cynical sometimes. I, I know uh, <laughs> with mass, with mass produced Christian culture, like subpar, I mean, yes. <laughs> I, you know, some of the quote art, some of the movies and music that they're just as formulaic or more so as a lot of the bad mainstream art. Um, but then there's some incredible Christian art, but you know, I, I, yeah. Uh, so there is, uh, I talk about episode eight. It's the last episode in the first season of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Uh-huh. Because, and just in emphasizing how uh, the, the incarnation of Christ is the ultimate act of empathy, the ultimate act of, you know, taking on someone's experience feeling what somebody else felt, you know, Jesus wept and, um, Makoto Fujimura and Steve Garber, uh, I was at a conference that they did a few years ago and Mako is an artist and Steve as a professor and writer, they both said if the two words Jesus wept were not in the Bible, they couldn't be Christians. Ooh, yeah, that's just that, you know, that's pretty powerful. It's very powerful. Yes. And I've thought a lot about that. And so the chosen, I think, represents that aspect of Christ's humanity and how he, I mean, yes, we think of his ultimate sacrifice at, you know, in the crucifixion, of course, that's it's important. That's the reason he came, but even how every day is full of the sacrifice of giving up so much of what, you know, the power he has just to take on the human experience and to feel it. And I think that that episode 
shows it really well in the interaction with the woman at the well and Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus and does such a great job, tears up. I don't know if you noticed that, but he tears up when she is realizes who he is. And I, I quote from an interview with him where he says, you know, this is not scripted. It just happened anytime, every time I played it. And he said, I think Jesus himself was probably tearing up. And I don't know, it even gives me chills now just yeah, talking thinking about, about it, it, right? Yes. So, but so the point is that, you know, I chose these all for different reasons. And some of them are just things I just watched. Some of them I've used in the classroom for years, but I found that they all connected to one another and they really truly represented the human condition. And they asked us, they either taught us how to be empathetic or they asked us to be empathetic for uh, the main characters. So you know, I think I found as I was reading, um, uh, number one, it's a quote fest. I mean, I love, I love good quotes and reading your book. I mean, you know, there are these tremendous, uh, literature quotes and, and as you connect the dots and, and I really appreciate that because sometimes we don't have eyes to see if we've not been reading literature, good, you know, classic literature. Uh, we're not, you know, our chops are, are used to uh, maybe junk fiction or yeah. whatever, you know? And so you do have to develop, um, a little bit of a reading, uh, years ago, I did a radio show and we had a book club, but it was, it was classics It what it, so, and, and the literature professor that helped us lead this, she said, we're going to start with a middle school book. And we actually started with the old Western Shane. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, something that just started to get people into it. And I, and I don't know, remember where we went from there, but I mean, we did this for years and the quality of the discussions were really in, incredible, but, but it was getting people engaged with and starting to read classic literature. Mm -hmm what, I mean, I think one of the things that happens reading, um, your book, uh, imagining our neighbors as ourselves is we start seeing, because you do a good job of, um, I said before, I think connecting the dots, explaining, but not, uh, but not talking down to, I, I just love the way you, um, bring the, the illustrations in from literature or visual arts or whatever, um, because I think we don't always have eyes to see that until someone, mm -hmm. until we do. And sometimes it is someone like you writing about it, pointing it out to us in our eyes. Like you talked about your students, all of a sudden their eyes are opened. Right? And can I also just say that oftentimes I have seen, I've learned a lot of things about what I teach from the students, you know, sometimes sure. they teach me, especially sure. in issues with race because I just as much or more than reading the novels I have and and the essays I have um, I've learned from hearing my students of color particularly black students share their experiences and when they feel empowered in the classroom because of the text we're reading and students that for so long will have been quiet because they don't want to be seen as playing the race card especially it's, it's a predominantly white institution, like most Christian colleges in America. And uh, 
but yeah, to have them speak out, to be honest, that's the most powerful, but it's interesting that the, the text in front of us has, has led us there. Yeah. You know, that can, that can empower someone when they see themselves in the text. Um, and then that can also open up the door for, uh, for these conversations for, for, for someone to be brave enough to share their own story. Um, so yeah, there's so many different ways that. that we can learn <laughs> a, a favorite quote of mine, um, that you included in the, in the introduction, um, in the book, I think, I don't think it's, I think it's in, in the introduction, um, you say, as CS Lewis explains in the weight of glory next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And that's really what you're talking about. These students in the, you know, that that's holy ground yes. when someone decides to open up and share out of the depth of their life, their hurt, their pain, their story. Yes, absolutely. It is. It's a sacred, it's a holy moment. I've, there've been moments like that in the classroom. Um, but yeah, because what it's, you know, at the core of all this, which I think is reflecting on that, that what Lewis, what's happening in the Lewis quote is if we really stop for a minute to see as Graham Greene talks about the image of God in the other person, then it should humble us. It should, should cause us to, to pause. Um, but I, I feel like our default tendency, me included, um, it's just to label and dismiss these people. And I mean, I include a lengthy quote, set of quotes from David Foster Wallace, not that, a Christian author. So tell, yeah, tell yeah. about him and where the, that was from. I found that really um, inter compelling. I love that. Yeah. Well, that's so David Foster Wallace, you know, the, the novelist and essayist who sadly committed suicide about Ooh. 10 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, his writing, um, that was from, he did a uh, graduation speech. He was invited, I think it was at Kenyon College. Yes, yes. And yeah, from this, yeah. And you can actually go listen to him give the speech on YouTube. It's, wow. uh, this is water. Is that it? This is water, the name of it. Um, but he just talks about how he just, he gives this lengthy example of going to the grocery store and the people around you are just annoying and how you look at them and you notice like all the problems with their like physical features and you think they're, and it's like, again, it's the imagination. You start, do you use your do you use your attentiveness to criticize or do you use your attentiveness to maybe see, well, what's the story? Well, what's going on? He doesn't talk about the image of God, but he does talk about um, really looking, seeing the person as a person yes. and not as an object to serve you and thinking, well, maybe they've had a terrible thing happen to them this day. And, you know, he, he asks you to be compassionate and merciful um, and David Foster Wallace is really interesting because in so much of his work, um, he really resists the kind of ironic dismissals. He's really asking us to be human and to see the humanity in others. And he really believes that, well, he goes on to talk about how everyone worships something and what we worship is what's going to orient us. And again, this is from someone who was not a Christian, but by the way, his favorite book ever is the Screwtape Letters. So oh, he's very fascinating. 
very he's very, very, he, he and another person like that, that I'd recommend if people are interested in very like contemporary or postmodern literature with, with individuals that really grappling with faith issues that aren't Christians is Douglas Copeland, who I feature a lot in the book and who was the object of, of whose work was the object of my dissertation, um, who, yeah, he, he, his books teach us, the, his way of teaching us empathy is to show um, individuals who grew up in non-Christian environments, and especially, you know, in very secular, quote, secular environments mm -hmm. like Vancouver, where he grew up, but that even when they've been taught that God is dead, they still have a strong religious impulse. Mm -hmm. They have a desire for God. And so he's always looking at that desire for God and in, in, in doing that, he's really humanizing these characters. And, and I think it's a reminder for, and again, not a Christian, but a reminder for Christians that every human being has these desires within them. And he does probably the best job I've ever seen oh. <laughs> of that in his book of short stories, Life After God. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I love that. Uh, one of the things you talk about, it's a chapter stories as self-reflection. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're, we've been talking about kind of looking outward, the, the empathy piece and, you know, imagining our neighbors as ourselves. I, I mean, I love the theme. My, my church's tagline is love God, love neighbor. And mm. so um, I really appreciate that, but talk about stories as self-reflection because um, that's also, I think, important, helpful and important. Yes. Um, so I, I, I was realizing, cause I, I realized, you know, you don't just jump there. There's some steps to help grow empathy. And so one chapter before the self-reflection is just even the, you know, art that really presents, uh, uh, presents us with the kind of constant pendulum swing of the human condition you know, from yeah. what Blaise Pascal calls wretched to glorious. Right. Um, and so I start with that. And then the next chapter, I talk about, well, you've got to be honest about yourself. Mm -hmm. Being honest about who you are yeah. is going to also help you love your neighbor. Which, um, which we're and, not, we don't live in a very self-reflective culture. No. So this is something that has to be cultivated, I think. It is, it is. And as in Christian culture, I mean, it's interesting that Friedrich Nietzsche, I can't remember if I quoted this in the book, but I like this quote. Of course, he's, you know, everything he writes is to slam and insult Christians. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, he says Christians blink within their soul. And I think it's interesting, this, uh, the idea, I mean, he's saying that we're not honest with ourselves because we don't give in to our will to power instincts to, you know, rule over everybody else. Um, and, you know, I, I, yeah, he, he's <laughs> very problematic because he wants us all to behave like the animals that he thinks we are. Um, but I think he's correct in the sense that I don't think it's just Christians, but I think it's very easy to close our eyes and our soul, like not look closely. I mean, Pascal says that, that, you know, the, the, the root of the world's evil can be found in the fact that a man can't sit alone in a room. Yeah. You know, he's so scared to examine himself. Yes. Um, but examining yourself and seeing your flaws and also the glory within you then helps you to see that more clearly in somebody else and also have more, um, 
compassion and generosity towards them. But I was, and narrative can help us. So I start with the story of um, David and the prophet Nathan and how David is, you know, committed adultery and murder basically, but has, has um, uh, his heart is, I mean, his conscience is just seared. And uh, until the prophet comes and, you know, tells them a story about, you remember about some, there's a man, a wealthy man who has all these sheep um, and he can have anything you want. Yeah. And then there's a poor man who has one sheep and the wealthy man insists on stealing the sheep from the poor man. And David's so, I just, it's, it's, it's so real that David is so angry at that man, but doesn't even see, but doesn't see himself. <laughs> yes. Until prophet, the prophet is like, you're the man, <laughs> you know? And I mean, yeah. it's, it's amazing. And, uh, and I also connect that with, um, in Hamlet. I mean, most of my, to be honest, most of my main examples, yeah. um, that I go into depth about are contemporary literature and film and TV and music. Cause that's my area. Yeah, sure. But, but I also like to show how this is not something new. This is right. something passed down because then we have in Hamlet where, um, when Hamlet is trying to figure out whether the go his father's ghost who said your uncle is the one who killed your father whether that's true or not he puts on a play because he knows that watching the play with the murder acted out in it is going to hit the conscience of the murderer yeah so then he'll know and so i was saying we know we see that going all the way back to scripture to shakespeare and then here are some examples of where you know, I, I talk about three works, one of them being Life After God by Copeland, mm -hmm. um, three works that really show kind of a, they all three have kind of a conversion experience within them. And they all three are about someone who finally realizes the depth of their need. Yes. And so I've, I've seen those, yes. especially the, the tree of life and life after God, um, I've, yeah, I've just had so many conversations about those, that, that book and that movie. And I, I always say, I've already mentioned this, but I think The Tree of Life to me is a, by Terrence Malick, one of my favorite films, but I've seen it with probably at least 10 times with different individuals and different groups of people. And people always have a very strong response to it. And it's always very different. And that is a very good example about how a good story um, embedded in an art form reads us, interprets mm -hmm. us. And so I feel like that's another way to help us with empathy is when you have a group discussion about a film like The Tree of Life, you're going to find out a lot about <laughs> the people in the, the group. People watching, yeah, yeah, as well as about yourself. Yes. So, true. Yeah. Um, I have to say, I have to mention this because I, I loved this movie when I saw it and it was, I think a little, a, a little watched movie. I think it's one of those, I think it was an independent film, probably Lars and the real girl. Yes. Um, I don't know if you talk about that in who is our neighbor or where in the book that you talk about it, but, um, I mean, there are just some great things to, to pull from that. Certainly. I actually uh, talk about that in that chapter about art modeling empathy because okay. the story is such gives such a good picture of a community oh, yes. right. modeling 
this it's it's yeah it's 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 such a weird movie but it's so beautiful Uh, yeah yeah (laughs) there's so much you can pull and draw from it hey let's we can't before we we end we can't get away without you talking about um who is our neighbor i mean the you know you're talking about imagining our neighbor as ourselves we've talked a lot about empathy because that's in the subtitle but you know who is our neighbor and of course if you're anyone who's listening who has that bible knowledge or has lived in the church setting for any length of time at all then we probably know the good the story of the good samaritan but what do you pull out in that chapter um to help us answer that question um i I mean, so many things. I think that's the core of that answering that. Of course, that was the question was raised right um, in that section. But I, I think it's really important, of course, to to note. Well, we've already mentioned. You mentioned all truth is God's truth. But I, I find it really interesting that the the one who is being the the neighbor, the good neighbor. So, f- well, first of all it shows us that the neighbor that when we look around who is our neighbor the neighbor is any human being they're all made in god's image and particularly those that are in need and so this neighbor has a need and so we want to gravitate towards that neighbor that has a need and to see that need and to and and the thing that would prompt us is to realize that they're a fellow image bearer but i think it's really interesting that the one who was a good neighbor um is someone who would have been an outcast in Jewish culture. He did not follow this. He did not follow the Jewish religion. Um, He would have been considered, you know, a subpar ethnic group. Uh, And, you know, the thing is that the two religious leaders that the Levite and the priest that not only did they ignore the, the, the man on the ground that was in need, they went to the other side of the road. Um, you know, so they were, they were very fearful. Um, MLK says, uh, that they were, they were so motivated by fear and they thought, what, what's going to happen to me if I go over there? Whereas he said that they should have been motivated by the question, what's going to happen to him if I don't, you know? And so, so they are walking on by, but I'm thinking the, the, the one person that had the greatest risk in this equation is the Samaritan because yeah, he, he would not be, he is not someone that is considered worthy within that culture. And so the fact that Jesus, I mean, again, this shows me the common grace idea that even Jesus is showing, look at this, here's someone even outside of the true faith of Judaism, and he is being more of a neighbor than you are, you know, so he's showing where can we learn, Um, so, so that is very powerful, and so that's one reason why, you know, all of, not all of these works are from Christians, Yes. Um, sometimes there are many people that aren't Christians that can teach us in their love for neighbor, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah. I think sometimes, you know, it, it points a finger at, you know, the church capital C, you know, who's leading the charge in, um, in loving neighbor absolutely. globally, you know, and of course today neighbor isn't just across the street, uh, neighbors across the globe, because it really is a, um, you know, a global community. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. 
I honestly, I mean, I could go on and on. There's just so much <laughs> meat in this book. I love it. And thank you so much. Oh yeah. I, I commend it to people imagining our neighbors as ourselves, how art shapes empathy. And, um, I would, I think this would be a great book to read with a small group hmm. and discuss. I, I'm all about the discussion and you're a teacher. Yeah. I'm sure you've got, you have great discussions in the classroom. I, so I love that. And I love discussing clearly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so good. Um, so I'm, I, I say this every once in a while on, um, the podcast, you know, often I'll talk to people about their book and the content and the topic is really good. And the conversation is good, but I don't necessarily keep the book or I'd be overrun with books, but this is one of those I'm going to keep and keep Aww. reading. And so, um, <laughs> I always, you. I like to tell people that when that's the case. So thank you, <laughs> uh, Mary McCampbell, what a delight to meet you and to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Wonderful to meet you. And thank you to everyone who's listening. So, uh, yeah, I would love to feel free to drop me a line or, you yeah, know, I, I should, I, I usually mention that, you, you know, email me producer at anitalustria.com. I can pass anything on to, to Mary for sure. Um, and as always, uh, I tell folks to keep the conversation going. Mm -hmm.